Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Welcome back to the Full Stack Journey podcast, where we talk about the ongoing evolution of the IT professional. As an IT professional, technology is always moving, always changing, always uh, evolving. And as IT professionals, we need to be sure to do the same. So thanks so much for listening today. My goal, um, as always, is to help equip and prepare listeners for their journey of learning across the full stack of technologies that are present in today's data centers and public cloud environments. And today we're going to be talking with Justin Garrison. We're going to be talking about a recent announcement uh, from AWS regarding uh, Kubernetes. So Justin, how are you? I'm doing just fine. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for joining. I appreciate it. Um, I, I put out a, a tweet as soon as I saw the announcement uh, about the uh, controllers for Kubernetes, which is what our topic's going to be on today. And then, like, I was not more than like two minutes, and Justin responds and like, "Yeah, I'll take care of it." Right? And so I was like, "Awesome!" <laughs> so that's fantastic. Thanks for responding so quickly. So, um, Justin, why don't you take a minute and sort of just tell the listeners of the podcast, you know, who you are. Uh, you know, your background, um, feel free to share Twitter handle, blog URLs, yeah. plug books, you know, whatever. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I come from a long, uh, long history of being an operator at multiple different companies. Um, started off as, you know, sysadmin and worked my way on to like system engineering. Uh, I was at Disney for quite a while uh, doing infrastructure for um, the animated movies and then moving on to Disney streaming, uh, which was the Disney Plus infrastructure, which was all you know, cloud-based infrastructure for obviously streaming the movies that I helped make previously, which was pretty awesome. And, uh, and I learned a lot through that process, just kind of what complex environments need. And, and I, uh, now it's four years ago or so, uh, Chris Nova and I wrote a book about, so it's called cloud native infrastructure, which is all about, um, how to kind of do cloud infrastructure successfully. Um, a lot of that was driven from seeing companies struggle over and over again with, making cloud providers be data centers and, and really, you know, us East one, isn't your typical data center. It's not, it's not something that, you know, you're managing and, and doing everything for you, you can handle these things differently when uh, someone, you outsource a lot of that work to a provider, to a cloud provider and say, Hey, guess what? I'm not racking and stacking. I'm not wiring. I'm not picking IPs. You are doing overlay things like VPCs and, and picking compute and services, but really it's, it's about, you know, picking and choosing those services instead of installing operating systems and, and managing, you know, some of the lower level things uh, can kind of go away. And, and a lot of stuff that, you know, we tried to put out in the book was, was early Kubernetes days and we were seeing patterns evolve around just what people were doing. So uh, we really tried to put that down as, as sort of a resource for people. And, and so through that, I, you know, even before then I was, I was, both of us were really involved in Kubernetes uh, ecosystem uh, just early on with the project understanding, you know, the needs and, and where the project was going. So uh, it was a lot of work and, and it was a lot of fun, uh, especially early days. And now it's, it's really Kubernetes has kind of turned a corner where it's in so many production environments. It still moves fast. It still has a lot of releases, uh, but some of the features have slowed down a little bit and have a little more structure around it, which is great. And so uh, I, I'm frequently online, as you said, I'm on Twitter, uh, Rothgar, and I, I have a blog at uh, justingarrison.com that I occasionally update with some of my thoughts there around where stuff is evolving uh, in cloud space. I now am an advocate for AWS. So I am on the containers team with AWS and, and really trying to advocate for people's success. Like anyone using containers, uh, we want to try to help you, you know, help you be successful with those containers and your workloads. And, and being a customer for so long was, was really interesting for me just to kind of switch that role of always being you know, advocated to from, from wanting to use the services. And now I can help impact the, the products internally for where I wanted them to go as a customer, uh, but also, you know, get feedback from broader, the broader audience, which is 
really exciting for me just to be able to talk to customers, see what they're doing, and then know from myself again what what I wanted for so long. And and ACK was one of those things. Gotcha. Awesome. You know, uh, separately at some point, I should I'm, I'm going to make a note uh, to circle back with you at some point because I think the you know the the podcast is about you know growing and evolving and changing. And one of the things that I I see now and then is like folks like yourself moving from the customer side onto a vendor or provider side or folks moving from a vendor provider role into a customer role. And it might be interesting just to you know, do like some little mini discussions about that, but we'll save that topic for a different day. Right now we want to focus on uh, the AWS controllers for Kubernetes or ACK, which is our, our core topic for today. So um, I saw the announcement. It's been what, like uh, two, two weeks or something. Is that, is that about right? Somewhere in there. Yeah. I, yeah, by the time okay. this recording comes out, it's probably a little more. Yeah, yeah, that, that's fair. Yeah, it'll be a couple more weeks before we actually publish the, the show. So why don't we start out with just like, what are we talking about here? When we talk about ACK, like, you know, what is or, you know, what are the AWS controllers for Kubernetes? And kind of just set the stage for that. And then we'll, we'll dig in a little bit more uh, after that. So I think even... Starting before that, like, Kubernetes has evolved a lot over the years, and there's always this notion that I can run my my code or my services inside of Kubernetes with a pod. I can have deployments. I can have all those sort of resources inside the cluster. Uh, but a lot of times, there's resources you don't want in the cluster. Things like RDS instances or caching or things that are within your Kubernetes environment, you know, cloud providers is what Kubernetes calls them. They have these controllers that do things like if I declare a service and I want a load balancer, the cloud provider will give me that load balancer. It doesn't matter where you're running and you can do cloud providers for uh, all the, you know, major uh, clouds, but also on-prem and you could have, you know, these cloud provider hooks that allow you to do things inside of VMware or OpenStack or bare metal. And, and these are all things that Kubernetes was flexible with. And early on, you know, this was, I was on-prem at the time when I was using Kubernetes uh, for the first time and, and adding that support on-prem was kind of an eye-opener where it always used to be like, oh, everything works in the cloud. I'm like, but in Kubernetes, it can also work anywhere, which was super fascinating because it's not just about, you know, Everything either has to run in Kubernetes, and you can run everything in Kubernetes. You can run your databases and your, you know, MinIO and other resources inside your cluster. But sometimes you also just want to give that to someone, someone else, whether that's org structure because another team needs to do it, or it's you, know, you pay a cloud provider that gives you all those resources and you pay for the consumption of them. So sometimes it is better to just, you know, make those outside of where my code runs inside of Kubernetes. And it's evolved a lot over the years where there used to be um, different things inside Kubernetes for like, how do I get these resources? And there was, um, what's it called now? It's not called the service provider. It was called the, oh, I'm blanking on the name of it. But there, there's been a couple different iterations of like, I want to request a resource and something's going to provision that and give me credentials to access it. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. I think it was the um, the service orchestrator or something like that. I honestly cannot. There was there was a couple yeah. different ways of doing it. Yeah, and so and so there's these notions of like me as a developer, I want to interact with Kubernetes, the Kubernetes API, and everything should be viewable and represented as part of that Kubernetes API. My interface to the rest of the world infrastructure is Kubernetes, and I don't want to, you know, run a kube control command and then run some ansible scripts or i don't want to run the aws you know cli or terraform or something else outside of that life cycle for how i manage infrastructure and so pushing these things more into kubernetes allowed me to get representation of their states and the resources and my, my total view of what my application needs 
which was really how Kubernetes has been evolving for a long time. It's just iterating over and over again on how people want to use it and different ways to represent that. So ACK is one of those representations where uh, Kubernetes has a great idea of custom resource definitions that is literally just a spec. You can make it whatever you want. I think there's one for pizza. Like I can order Domino's pizza with a CRD and, and you can make this, you know, a spec is just a data structure in Kubernetes that says, you know, what, what it's, what's it called? What sort of data does it have? Is it, you know, is if I can make a cat, you know, CRD and the cat could have a color and a tail and all these things. And it's just, how do I abstractly or, or concretely want to represent a thing? And then that data itself does nothing. But then you have a controller that looks at those CRDs, a controller that says, hey, I want to look for all the cats and I'm going to do some work based on if there's an orange cat. And I'm going to say, hey, the orange cats get food and the you know, brown cats go to sleep or something. And, and the controller is the actual smarts of work being done. And, and so ACK is, is taking that idea of, hey, we can represent an S3 bucket inside of Kubernetes with a custom resource definition, which again is just the data. It's nothing actually happens. But then ACK, the controllers themselves, actually look for an S3 bucket object inside of Kubernetes and say, oh, hey, I see this object. I need to go create it. And I'm going to do that for you know, the user because that's what's asked for. So that's the idea of the controllers. And, and in really just any sort of controller inside of Kubernetes is what we kind of call infrastructure as software. It's, it's not infrastructure code. It's not a repository full of text files. It's actually software that's running that makes actions on the fly. And, and you know, Terraform and all these things are great at infrastructure as code where anytime I get pushed, things change. Uh, but the infrastructure as software actually maintains that state. And it says, hey, you told me you wanted this bucket. And someone changed the bucket. So someone went outside of Kubernetes and, and went in the console and clicked this thing. I'm going to revert that because I know that's not the state of how this should be. So I'm going to actually actively running software looks at that state and make sure it's correct. Right. So much in the same way, you know, you look at some of the Kubernetes projects, like I, I spent a lot of time working on or working with cluster API. So much in the same way in cluster API, you know, we have these custom resource definitions that describe, you know, a Kubernetes cluster or a a specific provider's implementation of a Kubernetes cluster, like an AWS cluster or whatever, and then controllers that are aware of what those objects are and then are set to perform actions based on those objects or based on the properties of those objects. Um, you know, that, then the, the, in that particular context, the goal is to, you know, stand up a Kubernetes cluster. We're basically seeing, seeing the same thing here with ACK is you have, um, you know, starting out with a subset of, of you know, the broad variety of services AWS offers, right? But here's, a, you know, the definition of what an S3 bucket would look like. And then there's a controller that knows about that definition and can then take action based on that definition to do things, to instantiate, to destroy, to modify, whatever the case may be. Is that an accurate sort of yep, exactly. regurgitation of what you just said? Yeah. The, the, the one thing that I think is interesting here is, is the difference between a controller and an operator inside of Kubernetes terms, where a controller looks at the spec and does the thing. It's a more of a one-to-one -one kind of map of like, I, it's not super intelligent as far as how the life cycle of, of a resource is, is provisioned or destroyed, uh, but it is able to do those provisionings. It's able to converge the state from a, a known, I want this spec, and does that spec exist? Uh, whereas uh, CoreOS had termed operators, which were more of the like higher level abstraction of like the life cycle of the thing, where if I have an S3 bucket and I can create, I can delete it, 
Uh, but I actually need like a lifecycle management around objects uh, in that bucket that are outside of what AWS can do. Uh, there is another level of, of we need operators that kind of do those things for us. And right now that operator is humans. The, the humans are the ones that you know manage <laughs> how those objects change. Uh, but it is a notion that it, I always try to be clear about where, yeah, the controller will create, will delete, will modify uh, these custom resource definitions, but it's not going to do special things if you think um, there's operators for like, you know, databases or managed Redis or, or things of that nature that say, hey, I actually understand if I need to do an upgrade, I need to do a rolling upgrade, I need to do health checks, I need all this stuff. And, and ACK isn't really about that currently. It's, it's just about, I want a spec that provisions that resource for me and something makes it happen. No, that's a that's a good clarification because I think there probably is a fair amount of confusion. You know, you see the term controller and operator, and they're often used interchangeably, and 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 probably shouldn't be right in many cases, because the idea of a controller is more limited, right? Focused on lifecycle, as you described, where I'm going to go create an object or realize an object, or I'm going to go modify an object, or I'm going to go destroy that object, as opposed to understanding the nuance of the object and you know what that object does and what other things it may create and how you may need to work with those or something of that nature. Right. So that's exactly. that's fair. Thanks for that, that clarification. To that point, the controller piece of it isn't super magical and doesn't do, it, it doesn't codify a person's job, right? At this point, it's just like, hey, make the thing. Okay, like I, I can do that. I can delete the thing. I can modify the thing. But yeah, the, the life cycle, the interest, intricacies of like an object or a resource may be different depending on how you're managing it inside your company. Sure, sure. That's totally fair. So what is, I mean, I think we, we can probably infer from the discussion of, you know, what, what ACK is, um, we can probably infer this next question, but let's just be explicit about it. You know, so what is the intended sort of use case and purpose here? Like what is, what or how do you envision users, um, human operators using ACK? Similar to our, you know, initial analogy of a developer needing to see a full view of their infrastructure, uh, being able to understand all the components and deploy things as single units and say, hey, I have this container, I need it to run, but it also needs Redis and it also needs S3 or RDS or something. And and being able to provision those things as part of the same spec instead of some out-of-band thing where you have you know, Jenkins do, here's my Ansible, here's my AWS CLI, oh, and here's the kube control commands. And, and instead say, hey, we're just going to put all that into, into Kubernetes and I can query it all in one point because I can go to that cluster and say, hey, Kube Control, tell me my objects and my infrastructure, anything with this label, and, and get a more holistic view of what's going on, uh, as well as troubleshooting things where I could say, hey, what, describe that bucket to me, what's going, what's happening, and, and I can get more detailed information, so just the semantics of how we interact with things becomes standardized, which is great because that minimizes a lot of borders between teams where tools create those borders. And if, if one, if the, you know, dev team is using kube control and the ops team is using Ansible, uh, they talk different languages and they say, Hey, why don't you just put all your stuff in Ansible? Well, why don't you put all your stuff in kube control? And like those borders tend to, you know, blend a lot better when it's the same tool and it's the same language. And that's where a lot of these barriers come in and people can work together easily. You can understand each other's needs a lot better. And so a lot of, you know, putting more things into Kubernetes and making it a single API for everything infrastructure uh, has a benefit in your org structure and how people communicate, which is super fascinating to me because I, I just see how people can move faster in those scenarios where it's not, you know, translating between team A and team B and saying, oh, well, we all use kube control. So let's, let's figure it out and how this could actually work, which is great. Awesome. 
I think we've, you know, we've kind of already covered some, some of the, you know, the key concepts, you know, we have the controllers, which have the intelligence or the lifecycle intelligence of, you know, managing these, uh, you know, custom objects, these custom resources, uh, you know, in regards to the ACK architecture, like, is there anything more beyond that? I mean, is that kind of the, the basis? I mean, you know, what else should people be aware of as they begin looking at this and trying to decide, well, is this something that would be useful in my environment? Before we even get there, this is still in sort of like a developer preview, right? Right. It, right now it is developer. If you're a developer and you are interested in this, uh, come check it out. It's not production grade. It's not even beta. Like we don't have examples of just like, here's how to deploy it. It's still, if you want to run it right now, you run a make command. And so you need to be able to spin up that infrastructure and, and do things locally to try it out. Uh, we're making a lot of progress with some of the initial services that you know, we want to support, but it's not to the point of, hey, please deploy this and rely on it for production needs. Uh, it's We wanted to get early feedback because there's a lot of questions we have around that architecture and we want to know how people want to use it. And and typically the answer is every way, uh, but <laughs> we, we want to see, you know, how many people might have a problem. Like things say I have an S3 bucket and I delete that object in Kubernetes. Uh, should the controller delete the bucket? That I might have production data there. Like someone may not understand the trade-off of, hey, when I delete it in Kubernetes, something actually happens in infrastructure and data is lost. If I delete an RDS instance, did I just drop the tables? Right? <laughs> like, is that database gone? And so those are things we want to get feedback on from the community. And that's why we were opening open sourcing it early and, and letting people have feedback. Uh, but to your point about architecture, a couple of things that I think are really unique about ACK is one, it's a pro and con here, but it's there's one controller for every AWS service. There's 170 services or so in AWS, so that's 170 controllers potentially running in your cluster, uh, which is probably not what you want in a lot of cases. Like, d- hopefully, people aren't using. And again, developer preview, we're not running all those services. So there's a handful right now, but eventually, we get to the state of let's say we have 170 controllers. Like, is that actually what you want? I don't. I don't know of any customers that use every AWS service. So uh, it's a, a good and a bad where you can pick and choose. You, you can say, hey, you know what? The, the cloud provider model inside of Kubernetes is, is nice from a, I deploy the AWS cloud provider and it does all the AWS stuff for me. Uh, but that's also a, a monolithic approach to how some of the software is architected and, and needs a lot more permissions. And if someone has access to that cloud provider, I can't fine grain tune who can do what and how it does resources. So the independent controller model, uh, we can have a controller scoped to say a namespace and say, hey, that team deploys their own S3 buckets through the controller in their namespace. And they don't get to touch the other team's namespace controller and deploy buckets or RDS or something. So I can scope things a little more fine-grained and say, hey, and this pod only needs access to the S3 API. I don't, if, if there's a compromise, if there's something that happens uh, with that controller, I don't need it to also be able to deploy, you know, EC2 instances. That's not what the controller is designed for. So that least privilege model makes a lot of sense in small controllers. It, again, it's overhead for an operator to say, hey, which controller is up to date? How do I do these things? But again, Kubernetes is really good at, at kind of maintaining some of that stuff. So we can test you know, with declarative infrastructure, say, hey, I'll, I want to update my controllers to these versions and these namespaces. And, and just like we deploy applications, we deploy controllers. It is an application. It just happens to run infrastructure instead of you know providing an endpoint for a user. Um, so that's a really neat 
difference between how I see some other things happening with controllers and in especially cloud providers and uh, things of that nature. The other thing is ACK has this notion of cross account ability to provision things. So I can have a I can have one cluster that does all of my S3 buckets across multiple environments and multiple accounts and multiple regions. And that one controller could be, could be responsible for spinning up all of my S3 buckets. Uh, this is like a big benefit of, say, Terraform, where I could say, Terraform, I have these 10 AWS accounts, and I need you to make this S3 bucket everywhere. And, and I can make new providers inside of the Terraform code and say, okay, prod one or prod east, prod west, prod UK, so things of that nature. And Terraform could just, okay, I'm just going to for each do all these things. Uh, and you can scope some of those permissions again to say, hey, this one cluster or this one controller needs some different access than the other clusters. And so I have this one cluster, this one controller that has cross accounts, uh, assume role and privilege to S3. And then I can manage that in one place. And so that helps reduce some of that complexity of having a, you know, dozens of controllers everywhere, uh, but also limits where the permissions are for, I can say, hey, where's my permissions for all of my you know, S3 buckets or RDS instances? Oh, it's all in this one Kubernetes cluster with this one pod. Nothing else should be able to do that. And that really helps limit that understanding and say, oh, well, someone is you know running amok with RDS in some other region or some other account, and I can more easily troubleshoot some of those things by being able to reduce that. So that modular architecture uh, sometimes seems like overwhelming and kind of a burden, but it adds a lot of that flexibility for how people want to use things and, and understand things when day two comes around and I need to upgrade or audit certain things. Yeah, I could certainly see the sort of the pros and cons of an approach like that. There is some additional complexity, but there's also a great deal of additional flexibility in how you leverage you know, the functionality and being able to pick and choose and say, okay, I, I know I'm only going to use this subset of a dozen services or so, right? And and these are the ones I want to focus on. So I can I can set them here and then set them up in such a way that you know I can work across all of my AWS accounts if that's what I need to do. And and for um, adoption. I could say, hey, yeah. I, I want to start with just S3. I don't care about all the other stuff right now. So let me just deploy the S3 one and let's start to put some resources there. And then if I trust it, if I like it more, I can then say, okay, well I'm going to do RDS now. I'm going to do you know SNSQ stuff of that nature, which is which is great to allow you to slowly adopt it instead of just saying, hey, day one everything's in Kubernetes now, everyone switched. It's like, I don't know, use one namespace, use one team, use one service and, and see how that workflow works and, and, and go with it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. I mean, you know, we, I talk a lot with folks about, you know, like, Hey, don't, don't try to boil the ocean. Like just start with a, you know, use case that you can solve, right. Where you can make success, have some success in that one use case, and then you can expand and grow from there. Um, so it's good to see, um, you know, a similar pattern sort of being followed here. Now, uh, you know, any, almost everything in Kubernetes builds on previous technologies. You know what I mean? Like there's all these other things in Kubernetes that like if you're relatively new to the space, right? You know, Kubernetes itself is not, it's not like a huge jump. But if you don't have, you know, Linux and Linux kernel and you don't have, you know, container runtimes, Docker container D, or you don't know, you know, IP tables or IPVS, you know, or you don't know something else, right? There's all of this sort of prerequisite work in order to get up to the space where you can say, okay, I'm, I'm familiar enough with the entire stack that now I, I feel like I can do something. When it, when it comes to ACK, like if you were talking to somebody who said, hey, I'm, I'm sort of new to the Kubernetes space or even maybe new to AWS, right? Which seems kind of like, how would that be? But it's still possible. 
you know, listeners who find themselves in that situation, what are some things they should be looking at now? Like we're still in developer preview with ACK, so it's not quite ready for people to take on um, unless you're interested in kind of shaping the development stuff, right? Um, so for those folks who are out there who are interested, like, hey, this sounds like something I could really use. Maybe I don't, you know, I'm not quite up to speed with all of these things. What are the things they can learn now while this progresses towards being ready for somebody to consume, if that makes sense? Yeah, I think if someone's in Kubernetes right now, they're, they're getting used to or they're redeploying their applications in a, a Kubernetes native way. And they're saying, okay, I, I no longer run this on a you know, EC2 instance or, or bare metal, uh, but I, I containerize it. And that workflow of how they get from development, you know, get repo to a production running service. Those are things that a lot of people need to figure out that that change pretty drastically when you're in Kubernetes. And, and things are more easy to program and more easy to programmatically just say, hey, I want a load balancer. And I know plenty of environments where, you know, load balancers used to be an email request and I couldn't, I didn't have API access or I didn't have some way to get a load balancer. So I had to send an email and wait a couple of days and say, okay, well, I guess I'm going to go wait. You know, that's, that code is going to cool down in the Git repo and I'm going to go work on something else until I get here back and get a load balancer, which inevitably will be wrong the first time and you'll have to go do it again. <laughs> and, and so those sorts of, you know, those, that workflow and, and the speed at how you can deploy things, making your code and the infrastructure a little more Kubernetes native helps a lot of ways because it is becoming that standard API, that standard interface and that workflow of how do I get something? How do I describe something? How do I troubleshoot inside of Kubernetes? And those are all new skills that even if you have a lot of kernel tuning experience or even like uh, I can, you know, S trace a binary and finds, you know, what, where the memory is going or if there's a file allocation wrong or something, I, I can do a lot of these things at the lower level Linux, but doing that in Kubernetes is something new to learn for everyone. And so that's a good place that learning how to run a successful application inside of Kubernetes and debug it and upgrade it and, and do the things that you normally would do on a, a standard you know, Linux host. Uh, everyone's learning it. And that's great just to get started there. And then once you say, okay, well, I understand how I deploy my application. Now let me understand how I can add those dependencies, how I can say, okay, well, my application relied on this external, you know, either load balancer or, you know, Redis cache or something like of that of that nature, how do I bring that into Kubernetes or how do I manage that with Kubernetes? And it doesn't have to be ACK. There's plenty of other controllers and CRDs and operators out there that'll help you with some of that. And so you can go that route and say, okay, well, I know this resource. Maybe it's, you know, we have it running somewhere else. Let's see what that looks like inside of a Kubernetes workflow. And, and you don't necessarily even need to, again, run it on top of Kubernetes. Um, the service catalog is the, the thing we were trying to think of earlier, which is provision this external resource for me. And so, hey, can I get us the service catalog or something else to talk to a service broker, which is a way to like discover resources and then tie that into my application somehow. And so there's changing that workflow is, is going to pay off dividends even when you move to ACK or you do something else because the Kubernetes workflow on, on troubleshooting and deploying is really where it's portable right now. And that's that interface collapses, like I said, collapses those, those team borders and collapses a lot of that um, 
different translation of what one team is doing versus another. And so if you can learn that workflow and, and just how to use Kubernetes well, uh, ACK is, again, it's, it's just another resource. And the controller will update my details and my describe and you know my Git. All that stuff is going to work the exact same way as everything else in Kubernetes. Uh, the only difference is you could also use the AWS CLI to, to run those commands and see what's going on. But the controllers should be able to manage those things for you. Uh, and you don't, some people, you know, if you're using Terraform, I have to do a, you know, a Terraform apply to see what's going to be, or, or Terraform, you know, plan to test what's going to be different. And I can say, okay, what, what's the world look like right now? And is it, does it match my current repo? And, and that's great. Controllers and Kubernetes interface does that for you too. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. That, that makes sense. I, I mean, the, um, you know, so many times I see folks trying to sort of do things the same way they've always done them as they move into Kubernetes, right? And and sometimes you can get a limited benefit out of that, you know, sort of the lift and shift approach, right? To just wrap my application in a container and drop it onto Kubernetes. And sometimes that helps, but you really want to spend some time kind of understanding how can I natively take advantage of what this platform offers to really get the most out of it. And if that means I need to, you know, adjust my, the way my application works or break apart pieces of it, whatever that's, you know, and then understanding that workflow and how you do that, then just kind of pays dividends, not just with applications, but when you start looking at controllers, when you start looking at ACK or other solutions that do similar mechanisms, right? So uh, I could... And Kubernetes and containers are flexible enough to allow you to do those things the same way, which is like, that's the, the pro and the con where you can pretty much do anything you could do on a Linux host in a container and you can make it kind of work on Kubernetes. But uh, once you have, you know, containers that SSH into some IP address to, you know, run some task or something like, like that's when some of this breaks down if you're not getting the benefits anymore, because you're, you're going to be tied to an old way of thinking about, well, this IP address is always stable. So I should be able to always get to this endpoint or, you know, once you, once you're able to kind of release some of that control, and that's where I think a lot of Kubernetes benefits are where operators, like you, you don't specify exactly how many, you know, pods are running for your resource. You let the, you know, pod horizontal autoscaler do that for you. You don't necessarily have to specify exactly how big that pod is because you can have an autoscaler do that for you. And there's a lot of these programmatic things where we take some of that load off of a person from doing it via a spreadsheet or, you know, CapEx planning to say, okay, well, I need this many hosts for this thing. It's like, well, actually, like the environments are a lot more dynamic. And if we can lean into how dynamic they are and make it easier for people to take advantage of declaring things and getting them on demand, uh, you can move a lot faster, you can experiment, you can learn things and you can fail. You're going to fail at some point, you're going to learn new things, but it, you know, it's not failure if you learn. And if you can keep understanding what the new lesson is and, and relying on you know, just what the community is teaching and where the industry is going, you can, you can do a whole lot more than you know, buy my server. I, I, I love hardware. I love you know, keeping it simple if possible. If I don't need things to be dynamic, I'm going to buy a server. I'm going to just manually SSH another thing and deploy it. And if I don't ever need to touch it again, great, because I don't need to think about it. But uh, things are large and complex now, and, and there's more and more internet users and services are scaling. So how do we make some of that aspect of it? How do we make things get bigger, easier for people to understand? Uh, and Kubernetes is really trying to solve some yeah, of those. Yeah, I, I totally agree, especially the part about like, you know, just like use the right sort of solution for what you're trying to accomplish there, right? If you don't need uh, something like Kubernetes where you can set it up once and it runs and it meets all your needs, then yeah, do that. But use Kubernetes where it makes sense rather than trying to push, you know, the, 
the one technology that solves all problems, right? Um, which we know doesn't actually solve all problems. Okay, so we know it's still early days for ACK, still in developer preview. If we have listeners out there who are interested in getting involved, aside from you know going to the GitHub repo and looking at it, like what should they, you know, like, hey, I want to get involved, you know, what should they do? Yeah, I mean, the GitHub repo is the best place to start. Uh, there's a lot of conversations there. We're trying to do pretty much every design decision and and how we're thinking about running with ACK. Like it's all in the open. We we wanted to get that community feedback early on. Customers get involved and and really help them understand how it should be used. Have them you know vote or tell us for you know what services are most important. But then also those decisions about like. If I delete a you know a bucket, what's going to happen? And and how do people like to manage those things inside their organizations? Uh, and what is the most Kubernetes, AWS, and customer native ways of doing those things? And so being able to add some of that flexibility uh, is great. And so the the repo right now is moving really fast because we're iterating on a lot of these uh, controllers. Uh, I don't think I, I pointed out that the controllers are a little different than there was an old service provider that AWS had, uh, which was CloudFormation based. And so basically you would tell Kubernetes, I want, to, I want a thing, which would then spin up a CloudFormation stack that the CloudFormation stack deployed the thing. And ACK is different because it actually talks to the APIs directly for those services. It's not using CloudFormation behind the scenes, uh, which, is, which is great because we generate the app controllers based on the API spec from the service itself. So the CDK, uh, the Cloud Development Kit from AWS has a whole spec for all the services with every API that and every you know, definition and piece of that API for a service. And we can take that spec and generate these controllers and then say, okay, now that controller looks for Kubernetes resources the same way that CDK, you know, I can, I can codify that API. So it's a, it's a great model to get new features out to users faster and also take away some of the like magic behind how it works. Uh, where before, like I said, if it was spinning up a CloudFormation stack and you need to debug it, I had to go to the CloudFormation stack. I had to look and say, okay, what, how did this work different than uh, what Kubernetes is telling me? And the controller could kind of sync some of that state, but I couldn't do everything. So in this case with ACK, we can, we can really look at exactly what's in Kubernetes and exactly what's in that API for the service and, and do that faster. So uh, but yeah, the GitHub repo, we have docs in, pro uh, in process for you know, upgrading things or, or you know, figuring out how to make things easier to onboard. Uh, but right now we're really focusing on expanding the services. Uh, but there is a, you know, a project board there. There's issues that have a lot of conversations and, and you know, pull request welcome if you want to you know, help out with some of this stuff too. We're, it's, it's a really fascinating way to generate code from code that then Kubernetes uses it, you know, as a spec. And so it's, it's really about making it on the end, end user's perspective, just data. I just need to provide the data that says my thing and the controller makes that data reality. But that's, yeah, the, the repo is the best way to get involved right now. I don't actually remember if there's a Slack channel that's public for it right now, uh, but I know there's been discussions on being able to get more interactive feedback from users that's not you know asynchronous uh, GitHub issues. But f feel free for now at least to put GitHub repos or, or issues on the GitHub repo to give feedback and kind of voice your opinion on how you think things should work. Yeah, I was going to ask if there were also conversations happening in Slack. I know some of the projects, in addition to the GitHub repos, they'll also have, you know, like a channel on the Kubernetes Slack. So I wasn't sure if maybe some of the ACK discussions are happening inside the provider AWS channel or uh, something like that. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting right now in this space where, you know, there's a Kubernetes Slack 
um, AWS or Amazon in general just recently moved to Slack as an internal uh, chat tool. So like we have an ability to make you know, channels and stuff like that inside of Slack that is is pretty standard for a lot of people. Uh, but there's also like, there's other like semi-public communities around AWS tools. Like Weaveworks has EKS control channels. And, and so like, it's hard to kind of consolidate where some of the stuff should be. So I know the, you know, the, the project managers and are, are trying to think of like, how do we get better feedback from customers? And right now, developer preview, we're expecting developers to give feedback and developers should be pretty used to adding issues to. Yeah. You know. Yeah. That makes sense. And it's fair. I uh, just wanted to, you know, like if, if there were other places where people could, uh, could carry on conversations to make sure we include that as well. Um, I mean, I'm, if, if you aren't, you know, if someone's not comfortable adding issues to GitHub, I'm on Twitter. I'm, I'm Rothgar on Twitter, which is, you know, obviously how this conversation started and, and how I've been. I also, um, Containers from the Couch is a series we do. It's a live stream that uh, some of the container advocates do, uh, which I did a, a an intro for ACK uh, that I'm, I'm sure we can put in some show notes or something um, that was trying to explain just the fundamentals behind it and how it works. Uh, and so that series also has, has gives us a lot of flexibility to explain slightly more in-depth topics uh, in a more interactive way because it's a live stream, we get chats, uh, we get comments on it, and so we can do some of those things a little easier. Awesome. All right, so as we shift into to wrapping up here, you know, I want to, again, you know, thank you for, for joining. Are there any sort of like closing thoughts for listeners? You know, we've been talking about sort of what ACK is, what we, uh, you know, what the intended sort of use case and audience is, right? Where, where the current state of the project is, it's early yet, you know, the developer preview, but anything else that listeners should know or be aware of with regards to the project or, you know, in particular, you, you mentioned really looking for feedback, like, you know, helping AWS users, having AWS users tell you, you know, hey, if I delete the bucket inside the Kubernetes cluster, what happens to the actual S3 bucket, you know? Um, Anything else that, you know, you're looking for from the community or from listeners that, you know, you guys would find useful in moving the project along? Um, first piece of, of how people should think about it or use it, uh, I do think, I want to be clear that ACK, again, is it's a very AWS-specific tool if you're running Kubernetes inside of inside of AWS or even outside, this is a generic, you know, tool for AWS. So the actual, like the developer workflow runs a kind cluster locally. Like I don't need ECK or, or uh, EKS. I don't need to run a COPS cluster. There's nothing specific about where these controllers run, which I think is, is kind of important because a team that manages the infrastructure, they can do this with the Kubernetes interface any Kubernetes interface. There's nothing special. You know, we're not limiting this to, hey, if you're running in Amazon, you should be able to do this. This is literally like I can have a cluster on a Raspberry Pi that provisions AWS resources. So that's really powerful. Again, that, that permission model around these controllers. Uh, so I, I do think that's kind of key to point out, but also a lot of people think of Kubernetes as, as portability and uh, being able to easily switch uh, either providers or or switch resources, and and I, th I think that's a not the right idea. Same with like Terraform. Terraform doesn't actually abstract a cloud provider, but it lets your workflow be consistent. And ACK and Kubernetes are again making that workflow portable, not necessarily the resources. And because we also try to tie into the API directly and make it as explicit as possible of every feature is available, we're not going to 
make this a, a abstraction over what does a bucket look like in every cloud provider? This is, oh no, this is, what does an AWS bucket look like? And, and how that works is going to be different than GCP or Azure or DigitalOcean or something. So um, that's a couple of things to kind of point out to, to new users and, and how they're thinking about it. But it, again, it does, if you can do more things in the workflow of Kubernetes for not just deploying, but troubleshooting and upgrading, that's where a lot of the power of Kubernetes API as a spec comes in. Yeah, thanks for just kind of reminding listeners about that. I mean, I, that's, uh, you know, sort of another thing for me to put in my board is to get people on to talk about the multi-cloud myth or the cloud portability myth, right, that so many people um, like to to perpetuate. And that would lead us into discussions around lock-in, and we just don't have time for that. So we'll, we'll do that a different day. <laughs> um, but but it is it is good to, to remind folks, like, you know, like, we're, you know, we're talking about a set of controllers that are specifically addressing AWS resources and then therefore can be tailored and customized and optimized for AWS resources. So this is not, you know, uh, as you put it, a, gener- a generic object storage controller, right? No, this is a, a, you know, a controller for S3 as an example. Um, so just keep that in mind, yeah. you know, listeners, as you're, you know, exploring ACK, you're looking at it. I think it's also good to, to tell folks, you know, hey, we can use Kind, uh, which is super, super useful tool. You can use kind to look at it, you know. So if you want to take a look at it, you don't have to go through the trouble of setting up some you know, massive, you know, whatever cluster on the back end. You can just take your laptop, spin up kind, you know, look at the stuff, see what it, what it looks like, get a feel for it, that kind of thing, and then you know, blow it away and move on. Right. Exactly. It's, it should be a low barrier to entry to try it out and, and experiment. Well, thanks uh, so much, Justin. Um, as we close, we want to just remind folks where they can find you online. Yeah, I, I'm probably mostly on Twitter, uh, Rothgar, R-O-T-H-G-A-R on Twitter. Uh, and then I have a, a my personal website, justingarrison.com. Uh, and and I'm, I'm around pretty often either in containers from the couch. I've, I've had a few different shows on there now, uh, as well as just generally uh, trying to stay, you know, in different areas. I, I joined some of the Kubernetes uh, SIG calls. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty frequent in some of those repos and documentation. So, uh, but yeah, you can find me online pretty easily. Okay. Awesome. Thanks. Uh, thanks so much for, for being on. I really appreciate it. Uh, listeners, thanks for, uh, joining us, uh, to talk about the AWS controllers for Kubernetes, uh, learn a little bit about this project and, uh, sort of, you know, the intended use cases and, and goals for it. As always, uh, I hope that the information that, uh, we have shared in the show is useful, um, and helps you, uh, you know, in some way in your daily job. Uh, be sure and stick around. We've got a um, uh, sponsored uh, Tech Bytes uh, segment with Dell Technologies coming up after the wrap of the show. So we'd love for you to join uh, myself and Drew uh, Connery Murray for that. Uh, but in the meantime, if you want to interact with the uh, Full Stack Journey podcast, feel free to find us on Twitter as at FSG Podcast. And feel free to hit me, your host, Scott Lowe, as at Scott underscore Lowe, also on Twitter. Um, and the show and show notes will be available on packetpushers.net and on various podcast networks uh, of your choice. So thanks so much. Thanks again, Justin. Welcome to Tech Bytes, a 15-minute podcast at the intersection of IT and business. Today's show, sponsored by Dell, explores a collaboration among Dell, Microsoft, and Intel on an Azure Stack hyper-converged infrastructure solution. Our guests are Giant, Senior Cloud Architect at Dell, and Chris Murphy, Regional Sales Director at Intel. Uh, Giant and Chris, welcome to the podcast. And to get us started, what are the elements of this Azure Stack bundle, and how do you differentiate it from other hyper-converged offerings? All right. So uh, the Dell EMC solutions for Azure Stack at CI... Um, Delivers a full productized, which is completely validated, 
um, and a supported HCI, which is hyperconverged infrastructure solution, um, that today enables organizations to kind of modernize their IT infrastructure um, for improved application runtime and performance. Um, and more importantly, a simplified management operations at a lower cost of ownership, right? That's that's very critical to many organizations, especially SMBs. And the, the Azure Stack HCI today, you know, uh, the, the Dell solutions for Azure Stack HCI combines this software-defined, uh, you know, compute storage and networking that you, that, you're, that you see in the industry today with the Microsoft Windows Server 2019. We recently launched, uh, rebranded our HCI offering as AX Notes from Dell Technologies. Um, which offers superior performance, scalability, and obviously powered by the software-defined infrastructure. The key difference here to note is that we kind of offer as a productized solution as against reference architecture. Um, so this lines up, I, I kind of want to kind of stress this point here, this lines up perfectly well with the Microsoft recent announcement on the new HCI productized approach. So right now, it's no more, you know, uh, the future product is going to be no more just the Windows Server 2019, but it's going to be a new HCI OS in itself, which is kind of completely productized. So that lines up really well with the Dell Technologies uh, strategy. Um, and the, the, the second one is obviously the, the Dell Open Managed Integration with the Windows Admin Center, which is simply loved by the industry today. Uh, basically, you have a single-click experience of doing a lifecycle management of your cluster, cluster node, which we call it as a cluster-aware update, uh, which significantly reduces um, the steps involved to update the firmware levels on the cluster, as, as much as about 95% reduced steps and 97% less attended time um, to maintain and manage the HCI cluster on AX nodes. Um, the third point is most critical, which is supported at the cluster level versus this, you know, you know, with the server level um, as against, uh, you know, which is done by, by a few of our competitors. So even if the customer did not buy uh, the Windows Server OEM licensing from Dell, we still support the customer at the cluster level, not just at the hardware. And the last but not the least, we have the third generation hardware, which combines the innovations such as uh, the RDMA networking, the Intel Optane persistent memory, uh, combined with the power of uh, the Intel Cascade Lake uh, you know, processors. We also recently introduced the Cascade Lake refreshers as well into our product portfolio. Um, and also the networking op op, you know, options that range from anywhere between 10 gig to 100 gigabit. So these kind of sum up why Dell Technologies, uh, the power of Dell Technologies, powered by, again, uh, Intel persistent memory, uh, the Intel Cascade uh, processors on Microsoft Azure Stack HCI. Thanks for that, uh, Jayanth. Um, so question then, for organizations that are looking to modernize their, uh, their uh, infrastructure, what does HCI bring to the table over a more traditional approach? And also be interested in hearing why might an organization not consider HCI? So if you look at most uh, organizations today, right, um, one thing is very common. They really want to get out of the business of IT. The reason is there is so much of overhead, right, um, overhead of managing the, the infrastructure. Now, if you look at the traditional infrastructure, which is 3 tier SAM, right, 
you have discrete components such as um, storage, network, um, and the compute, which are independently operated. You need skill sets for each of these domains. Um, and nobody would have tested the scalability, uh, especially if you look at the kind of mix that you have today. Customers buy um, you know, service from HP, probably uh, storage from Dell EMC, and then network from Cisco. So nobody would have tested the end-to-end -end, you know, interoperability testing, um, especially when it comes to scale, um, in, you know, scalability, right? So this is one of the biggest concerns today. And that is significantly reduced today with the software-defined storage, networking, and compute. This is where customers see an increased value um, wherein they have a predictable scalability, consistent scalability. They don't have to worry about uh, the interoperability in between these, uh, these components because completely managed, monitored, and handled by the software. So the benefit then is I'm getting this integrated bundle. I don't have to worry about stitching together all these disparate parts. Um, and poking again a little bit more with the second part of that question, are there reasons why folks may not want to go with HCI? Right. So um, there are reasons why customers today are simply not in a position to go not with HCI, uh, but you know eventually they have to get there. Right. They cannot be really you know depending on these legacy platforms forever. If you see today the kind of innovations that are happening in the industry today is mostly in the software defined. So to really be able to take advantage of the new technology offerings that are coming coming in, for example, the Intel, the Intel opt-in persistent memory. Right, um, that's not available today on any of the other uh, solution that you've seen a three-tier sand. So that is where the the industry is moving towards. Right, um, uh, so customers are increasingly looking at HCI as the place to go to. And are there particular workloads that customers are targeting to run on HCI, particularly the Azure Stack implementation? Yes, uh, one of the biggest. Uh, I speak to a lot of customers, uh, you know, throughout Asia. Uh, one of the biggest use cases that I see is uh, robo use cases, uh, where there is generally not a technically uh, qualified person to kind of manage, operate uh, the data center. And it's available in a kind of a mesh configuration where you can just literally connect your service back-to-back. -back. Um, that also reduces the total uh, TCO. Um, the workloads that we're typically, especially in this current situation, we're seeing a large-scale VDI deployments. Um, typically, high-performance SQL Server needs, right? Uh, this is where we have sensed the, the, the need of the market, and we have positioned these two uh, workloads, uh, kind of quick start configurations to meet these kind of workload requirements today on HCI. Yeah, Jayanth, if I can add it to that, I think one of the things that uh, is very interesting in this, this new norm we're operating in today uh, where the clearly the remote workforce, I think, is going to be here for quite some time. Uh, I think this is sort of the new norm going forward. And so uh, IT organizations have to be able to deploy quickly. Right? They have to be nimble. They have to have time to value of those resources. And that's one of the key things that ACI brings to the table. And I think what's unique about what Dell's done with the, with the Azure appliance strategy, which I think is awesome, by the way, is you've, you've taken that core Dell engineering and validation work that, that really uh, it leads industry in terms of uh, the type of technologies can bring to market and how quickly uh, you then take it and customize it for Microsoft Azure uh, and make it really 
really nice for Microsoft Azure HCI. Uh, so it's customized like you wouldn't uh, just a regular server off the shelf. And then you integrate it, fully integrate it, and basically make it turnkey. It's an easy button. So uh, as you look at the world of HCI, when applications would, on it, would run on it, whether it be VDI or, or database or just any other remote applications that are required in today's environment, the fact that you can do it quickly uh, is really a, a critical factor. So I think your strategy to make appliances out of these things and make an easy button for the customer, I think, is playing out very, very well. I think just just to add to that, right? I think Microsoft's strategy, if you look at it, um, in even the HCI uh, uh, that we're talking about today, has a has a native integration to Azure. So that makes things even more easier. Think about a scenario where customer already has a presence in Azure and they kind of want to monitor, manage with a single plane of glass from public Azure, they will be able to do that as well. So which means you're literally managing your Azure, uh, the Azure Stack HCI virtual machines, which are uh, basically uh, deployed on-premises from an Azure control plane, right? Uh, I think that's the beauty um, uh, if you look at it, right? That's where customers are increasingly seeing a huge value um, with this combination. I couldn't agree more. And it's interesting how we're seeing workloads split between uh, between the cloud and between on-prem. You know, on-prem isn't necessarily going away, right? There are certain applications you just have to have uh, on-prem, whether it be performance, security, or other things that, that might be uh, on your requirements list. But uh, but it's clear that you guys have taken a direction to be able to support both because it, it is cloud and on-prem. It is an and, right? It's not an or. Um, hey, Jay, maybe you can talk a little bit about some of the new technologies you've looked at and and how you're incorporating those into your architecture as you go out in time here. Because I think that's an interesting time in the industry we're at where we're looking at, you know, what can we do to optimize those on-prem resources to maximize value? And you've taken some steps on some new technologies. Maybe you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah, so um, one of the things that we have done is our relationship with Intel has always been a very strong one, right? Right from the server days. Um, and that, that's getting stronger in the HCI portfolio as well. Uh, so what we have done is kind of we've integrated the, the latest CPUs from Intel, which is the Cascade Lake Refresh and Cascade Lakes, um, with the Intel Optane Persistent Memory, right? Um, so when we did our testing in the lab, um, you know, especially for customers who are really looking at performance-hungry uh, workloads, uh, take, for example, the SQL um, server instances. Now, they are looking at, you know, higher IOPS with lower latency, uh, kind of a requirement, right? So when we tested uh, just with a four node, uh, which is the Dell um, PowerEdge AX640 nodes, um, power, you know, powered by the Intel Optane persistent memory, we were able to achieve a mind-boggling three million IOPS with just 0.7 uh, millisecond uh, latency. And those are those are the numbers which are industry leading today. This is what really interests the customer because customers today, as you can see. Um, slowly migrating their workloads from a traditional spinning desks to SSDs, and now you have the Intel persistent memory, right? Um, mm. I think that's that's a huge transition from Dell um, and Intel that you're trying to work on. Work on. Yeah, and you made a good point too about that uh, that engineering work that takes place at a Dell level, whether it be PowerEdge or other places. And we've been working on persistent memory with Dell for about five years, right? And so that technology really just came to market, and there you are, ready to go. And, I, and so I think that's one of the key things uh, that you are part of that 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 really massive Dell engineering and technology uh, company that can bring a lot of uh, ingredients to the table. And the fact you've integrated them so well with this uh, Microsoft Azure ACI 
solution is really awesome. So we're really looking forward to see how it goes uh, really over this next year, but also as we continue to go through and refresh these platforms. I mean, I'm feeling a lot of love here among you guys. Um, so big tech companies do like to tout these partnerships, but it sounds like there is actual under the hood engineering work to, to really take advantage of Optane in particular that's gone on here. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, Dell, even if you look across the portfolio, there are all sorts of other places where they've done it as well. Uh, we don't need to get into that now, but uh, there's Optane SSDs, which are, are really a, a wonderful solution for maybe a caching solution uh, in place of a NAND drive that can read and write simultaneously. So you're breaking through barriers that typically in the world of storage uh, in HCI, we have all these knobs we can turn, but we're always looking for the bottleneck. And so that's what these technologies are for, is really to break through some of the barriers we have, whether it be the, the, the current NAND technology, right? I mean, what's after all flash, right? We kind of, all right, what's next, right? You know, Optane SSDs are kind of next. And you look at memory where, you know, the, the capacities that we're trying to get to and the persistence capability that isn't there with traditional DRAM, you know, we're breaking through barriers with uh, Optane persistent memory. And, and the fact that we can do that with Dell and do it so quickly, I think is very unique in market. And there's a lot of places where Dell is really, frankly, first in this space. And this is one of them leading with persistent memory in this particular market segment. So, you know, if customers are looking at solutions across the landscape, uh, there's no question that uh, Dell is well ahead of the pack, and and we have an excellent relationship, and we continue to to really feed that to make sure we, what comes out the other end of the pipe uh, can bring value to the customers. Absolutely, Murph. I heard you say earlier, you know, you mentioned remote work and COVID, and and the the benefits that HCI provides in sort of rapid deployment. What other benefits might companies see from using HCI for their infrastructure that might help in coping with sort of the new normal that companies are dealing with? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I think, uh, you know, I actually work with Dell across their entire storage portfolio. Uh, so I work hand-in-hand uh, -hand with the PowerMax team, PowerStore, even PowerScale across all the other products. But uh, I, I think in this space in HCI, what is unique, uh, and maybe I mentioned it earlier, is how quickly you can deploy this to create value, right? You can add just a node. It's very simple. Uh, right, you can have very. It's consistent. Uh, you don't have to do a, a massive analysis of your infrastructure. You don't have to do an analysis of your workloads. Uh, you know, you've got tools that are built in there. Uh, you've got. Uh, I mean, really, if you look at it, Dell's put in place a way to de quickly deploy. You know, easily manage and consistently and simply maintain your product. The lifecycle management piece uh, is is a huge one. I think it's it's really underplayed in a lot of places. Dell Open Manage, a great example of how automation makes it easy. So, so I think um, I think the key here is really how quickly and how easily you can get these solutions uh, to be delivered to those remote workers. Because uh, the last thing you need is someone working remotely that's not effective or having challenges, right? So. So the demands on the IT infrastructure are far greater today than they ever were. And I think the ACI really is the path forward. The ability to kind of uh, run just with two nodes, think about scenarios in a robo use cases, right? You don't really have a technically qualified person to kind of operate those clusters. Uh, but with the ability of the Windows Admin Center, um, being able to deploy like what Morph was talking about uh, quickly, and also being able to manage that remotely with uh, the Dell Open Manage integration with Windows Admin Center, that's something that is literally blowing the industry today, right? So I think that's where customers love it. Uh, they like this combination of the Windows Admin Center with the Dell Open Manage integration, uh, being able to do a cluster-aware update 
which never heard of in the HCI uh, you know, world before. That's something customers really love. Well, that about does it for our time. Uh, Murph and Giant, thank you for joining us. If folks want to find out more, get more information, where would you send them? Well, uh, first of all, Giant is a, a, just a, a walking mass of information. I don't think we can ever get uh, all the stuff we'd love to get out of his brain. Uh, so, Giant, really appreciate you joining today. It's been uh, a, a wonderful discussion. Uh, if your customer is looking to get more information, they go to info.delltechnologies.com slash Azure. Uh, you can uh, even Google if you want to. It's very simple. There's plenty of information out there to learn more, lots of great videos. And uh, again, I, I think it's worth a double click into this technology. Uh, what they're doing is awesome. And uh, we really Really, uh, really appreciate and look forward to the continued partnership. Thank you. Uh, likewise, Leo, yeah, appreciate it. Thanks, everyone, for being here, and thank you for listening. You can find this and many more fine, free technical podcasts along with our community blog. That's at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at packetpushers. Find us on LinkedIn, like us on Facebook, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that your full stack journey never stops learning.